Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Ads Lyson. If you want 15% off your Northcore surfing and outdoor gear, look no further. Go to Northcore on the internet and use the code, capital letters, GRUMPYSURFER15 to get 15% off your purchase. On the podcast today, I have one of the most notorious and controversial surf journalists thanks to his work on his online media platforms, Beach Grit and Lodge Grit. He's also the author of books like Welcome to Paradise, Now Go to Hell and Cocaine and Surfing. He's also the host and co-host of podcasts Dirty Water with Derek Riley and The Grit with David Lee Scales. My guest is very open and honest and says it like it is, father and surfer. On the podcast, we discuss a variety of subjects from war to surfing. Please enjoy my conversation with Chaz Smith. And represents a snowboarder named Travis Rice, uh, who decided a couple years ago that basically he wanted his legacy to be a big mountain kind of snowboarding tour. Uh, and so she's been working hard with him on that for the last couple of years and then this past weekend uh it just ran it's called natural selection and it was absolutely incredible to see and the snow was epic in jackson so yeah a lot of fun you managed to take it you managed to go up there you've got a is that, you got a daughter as well haven't you i do yeah eight-year-old daughter yeah my my daughter's eight as well oh nice how fun is eight i know it must have been quite hectic pulling that round with you too it was kind of, she's so used to the snow at this point uh, and loves it so much. So actually her and I just go snowboarding and it is more fun than maybe I've ever had in my entire life doing anything. You run some online journalism pieces like Beach Grit and there's another couple of them as well, isn't it? Do you want to talk a little bit about that and, and how you got into it? Yeah, so Beach Grit, uh, I started with Derek Riley, who was the co-founder of Stab. Um, I think we were started about eight years ago, uh, where it was right around the time that I was finishing up my first book, uh, Welcome to Paradise, Now Go to Hell. And I thought at that point, I am so done with surfing. I've written my surf book. I need nothing else from surf. Uh, and so I was wanting to step away from surf and do something else. Uh, and then Derek hit me up about Beach Grit. And Derek is one of the very few people in the world I just can't say no to. Whatever Derek's doing, I want to be part of. So, yeah, we started it eight years ago, and it's been, yeah, ticking on ever since. It's a funny, I suppose this is the first sort of startup thing I've ever done, uh, which, yeah, you never, I suppose anybody who does a startup will say or says, uh, you never know how much work it's going to require until you're way too deep to be able to dig out. And so, yeah, that's sort of us right now, but it's all, it's going great. And then off that, we sort of have spun off Lodge Grit, which is a snow version. Uh, and my dream always is to spin off multiple grits to have, oh man, when all that fun GameStop trading stuff was going on, I wanted a stomp grit. And I'm always thinking about the different grits in a grit universe. You're gonna to have to expand with a few more journalists to do that though, right? You can't be in all those places at once. No, and I need to do it with even with the lodge grit now. That's I, part of my problem. I think is is uh, I'm not very good at delegating task, and so yeah, I just do it instead of where I should find 
other people to do it always. But hopefully that's that's what happens with the rest of them. How do you kind of genreize what beach grit is and lodge grit? Would would you say it's you kind of making controversial bits of journalism? You're trying to find sort of like the tidbits and and, and make something out of it. How how would you kind of generalize what what it is that you what your output is? I think I mean it started. Uh, I suppose it's always been the same. I just think that surf the surf world and the snowboard world, I suppose, but the surf world is the one I know more and is just such a wacky, funny world. Uh, and the media has been, I feel so muzzled more or less. I mean, I used to, you know, work at surfing magazine back in the day and it was always, you know, there's so many things you couldn't write about or talk about or share. Uh, so I think when we started beach Grid, it was like, let's just blow the doors open and let's talk about everything we want. And, you know, to hell with, which is probably not a good business model, but to hell with sponsors, to hell with whoever, you know, if, if something is out there and it's true and funny and or true and or funny, it's worth writing about. And that's one of the, I mean, greatest things ever about Derek is sometimes I'll pull back a little bit and say, oh man, you know, I got this funny story and, you know, but it's going to really burn XYZ brand or whatever. And he's always just laughing. And of course you write it. Like you never, ever, which so I guess that's sort of how it's evolved into it, it's a website for the people it's not for the brands or for the pros it's for the people who read is that's the only thing we care about at the end I think to to an extent journalism I mean talking from us from a, a sport perspective of it, it it can be very sort of like monotonous and mundane it's like the same old stories coming out and over again and almost kind of like sugarcoating it a little bit what we really want sometimes is you just want to get rid of that sugar coat, dig it all back down to the root of everything and, and find out, you know, what's at the bottom of it and hence probably beach grit. <laughs> precisely. It's precisely that. And sort of the, what's evolved from it too, is the best part of the conversation is the actual conversation. It's the people in the comments, you know, riffing on whether they're riffing on the, you know, whatever was written or, or anything else. That's where the fun is where, Again, I think this has sort of evolved over time where, yeah, it's just, it's parking lot banter now, which is pretty fun. Even if you do put some stories out there that are controversial, it's getting people talking about them as well, which obviously publicizes what you're doing. But if you're doing that and people are talking about it, they're not talking about the next Kelly Slater um, world championship title or something like that. It's something very sort of like surface layer. There's nothing, there's no real depth to it at all. Completely. Completely. And we've had, I mean, I feel like, you know, at Beach Grit, we'll throw not afraid to put politics up or, you know, whatever. Like, I think as long as people are having a conversation, again, even in this time where, or at least in America, and I'm sure in England too, like everybody's so polarized, being able to talk with people who believe differently than you, which I think a lot of people do on Beach Grit, and, you know, but they at least can have a conversation which I think that's more and more rare that those spaces exist. I'd love to know a little bit more about your background. You know, where did you grow up and how did you evolve into becoming a journalist? I grew, so I was born in California, but grew up on the uh, Oregon coast. My folks moved there when I was two or something. That's sort of where I, or my cousins lived in San Diego. So we'd come visit them and I discovered surfing from them and brought it back up to Oregon with me and just loved to surf. You know, that was so much my identity. I hated Oregon. I hated the bleak, you know, cold, rainy Oregon coast. And 
even though I, you know, obviously I was surfing in the bleak, cold, rainy Oregon coast, but as long as I was surfing, I felt like I was part of something bigger. I felt, you know, would imagine that I was in California or in Hawaii or in Australia. Uh, and then, so yeah, so loved surfing, went to college, studied, or my degree was intercultural studies, uh, and got, got a master's degree in linguistics with, with no, no thought to ever be a surf journalist or a writer. I loved reading, but you know, I, I never even imagined that. And then friends and I <clears throat> started traveling, uh, to surf sort of dangerous places. As it happened, I suppose, started writing about that. And then that accidentally became a career, surf journalism career. What would you think was the first major piece that you that you wrote, you you thought I've, I've, I've kind of made it to doing what I want to do? I mean, the first one I remember, so we, right after 9-11, two friends and I went and surfed in Yemen. And my one friend wrote the story for Surfer Magazine. And then I wrote the story for Australia Surfing Life. And I remember when I was writing it, just thinking, I can't believe it. I am writing, you know, surf magazines meant so much to me growing up. That was, that was my, you know, hook into that culture, especially being isolated up in Oregon. You know, that's, I just devoured surf magazines. And so I couldn't believe that I was writing, you know, for a surf magazine. And I thought, okay, this, I've totally arrived. I didn't still think that I wanted, you know, was going to be a surf journalist, but I, I thought, okay, this is going to be good. I remember getting the issue in the mail, running to the mailbox, getting it, opening it and reading it. And thinking this is the honest to goodness worst thing anyone has ever written ever. And so I stopped writing like I thought this is okay, great. At least I know I'm not a good writer. This is awful. And then we were in Lebanon, I think a year later. Uh, and I took another crack. My It was for a magazine called Vice. And my buddy was having trouble with the story. And so I just said, give me a crack and wrote it like a total jerk. And they like Vice liked it, published it. And then I thought, okay, I found my voice. I just need to be a jerk. <laughs> well, you know, at least, at least you found your niche, didn't you? Yeah, exactly. The, the jerk niche. Yeah. So, but then, yeah, like I still didn't, yeah, I was teaching English at the time at university. Yeah. I still, you know, didn't think it was going to be something until I, I suppose it just sort of became, yeah, became something. I just I wrote enough where, yeah, I didn't have time to teach anymore. What made you want to go out to Yemen from, you know, September 11th? The, I studied uh, in, <clears throat> excuse me, in Cairo for uh, six months as an undergraduate and really fell in love with, you know, Bo, I don't know, Arabic culture in general, could speak some Arabic, uh, you know, knew enough about Islam. And then my best friend uh, was getting his uh, PhD in Islamic studies at UCLA. And so we had this kind of shared interest and he, he and I had done a trip to the Middle East when we were kids and, you know, just running around. And so just the idea of it and the, uh, just having enough background, I suppose, where once 9-11 happened, you know, like, I mean, it was fascinating or obviously, you know, sad and whatnot, but also super fascinating. And the more I heard this Osama bin Laden character and that he was from Yemen, I remember seeing pictures of Yemen as a kid, National Geographic and stuff. And you know, thinking it was amazing looking, but had never considered the coast. But as soon as, yeah, the more Yemen was in the news, I was just started to stare at the coast thinking this coast has to have waves and nobody had ever surfed it. So it just became like a, yeah, some like a, a perfect mission. That sounds absolutely epic. When, when did you end, when did you end up going out to Yemen? Like what, like one month? It was uh summer. So I think we landed at the start of June and then 
were home by I think it was late August. It was a it was a three month run. Because I want to put some context into this because I was up in the Tora Bora Mountains come February February March time. And it's a very cold. Yeah, <laughs> and it was like it was the first time that I'd ever been at altitudes as well. So we were like. I think I think it was like between nineteen and twenty thousand feet. We, yeah. we were ba- we were based in uh, Bagram, but we got flown up by Chinook helicopters up into the mountains to go and um, to go and search for the Taliban. What what year was that? That was so September uh, two thousand and two. I just I just done a, a course to become um, heavy weapons, and I'd gone up to Scotland, and then within six months, September eleventh had happened. And we were flying out to Afghanistan, pretty much. Oh man, that's did you? How did you find Afghanistan? Do you know what? I've done three tours of Afghanistan and Iraq, and Afghanistan is probably one of the most beautiful countries in the world. I've read a few books on the the culture and the history, and I was really, really interested in the hippie trail that went through basically through the Middle East and, yep. and, and into Asia. And you can see the beauty behind why people would want to go there. It's just such a shame that it's in the dire straits that it is now. And what I was really interested, what I really wanted to talk to you about really is, you know, what your thoughts of a non-military person going over at that time. It must have been, it must have been crazy. Yeah, I mean, it was so, it felt unhinged in just the perfect adventure kind of way, right? Like where... Yeah, I mean, the Taliban, or I'm sorry, Al-Qaeda was running all through, you know, Yemen at that time. I mean, obviously, it was it was everywhere. But getting to have conversations with actually, I mean, you know, virulent, virulently, you know, angry Islamists, there, I don't know, there was something about the, there was something about it that just felt so amazing. And it was great to, again, I guess, I suppose, like the Beach Fruit comment section, there was something about being able to bash our ideology against theirs and have real conversation, which at that point, you know, I mean, it was, I think it was dangerous, obviously at times and whatnot, but overall, I mean, people still, people are people and people still want to talk. Right. And I don't know, there was, there was something, especially when I look back on it, something magical about both the time and the place. Yeah. I I personally, I I really like the Middle East, you know, as a, uh, as a place, as a destination, I've been on a couple of holidays. I got, I got married in Sri Lanka, so okay, you know that that was that was pretty cool. And I never thought I'd end up doing that, if I'm perfectly honest, which was really weird because when I when we landed, we landed in Colombo, and uh, the Tamil Tigers had just been doing a few attacks on the airport. So yep. me and the miss, me and the missus rock up, land at the airport, come out of these armed security guards everywhere and basically the army and there's all these security checkpoints and we're going down to this place called Ben Tota, which is on the uh, probably about a 20 minute drive from Colombo on the uh, on the west coast. And we come out there and these armed guards there and you've got all these concrete uh, blockades up and we're going down and I thought, oh man, I hope, I hope nothing happens. And then literally the, the day after we'd got to the hotel they drove the Tamil Tigers drove a suicide bomb into the uh, into the side of the uh, into the side of the airport where all like, the sentry posts were and I was like that how are we getting out of here and it was oh. even worse <laughs> it was even worse on the way out because on the way out we went through at night time and there was nobody about 
And I was like, look, if anything happens, I said this to the missus, I said, look, if anything happens, hold my hand and we're gone. I was going to go out the taxi door, made sure it was locked, and I was like, yeah, that was it. It was crazy. I mean, see, do do you look back on those times, though? I mean, I suppose you're still living it. You're still in the military. But do you look back and, uh, I don't know, like with a fondness for, for those those days? I'll tell you something, and I had a conversation with a, with a guy last night about this. Sometimes when you're in the military, guys that join up, especially because I'm in the Royal Marines Commandos, so when guys join, they want to join to go and fight war. They, they want to go into conflict. And the one thing I've always said, and I've taken recruits through as well, through training, is you need to be careful what you wish for. Especially this day and age where you've got lots of computer games, everything's televised, there's media. The whole the whole ideal of being in a situation like that and seeing it in films must be really, really appealing. But what you don't see is the hardship in between being in firefights, the, the weeks on end, you know, living on rations and water, and you might not be getting them because you might be in a dangerous area or where you're living, you might just have to really really ration um, and those hard times and then when you're getting attacked and nearly overrun at certain points like we were it's it <laughs> this is gonna sound really bizarre in, in, in contrast but it's really fun yeah and until it gets real yeah and that, that's how i see it so the answer to your question is yeah i do look back and then go fuck I, we did some cool stuff but you know there were also some harrowing times as well I mean, I suppose it's so easy to gloss over. I mean, yeah, I remember the times that I've been in trouble thinking, why in the world did I do this until after? And then you make it through and then you're like, oh yeah, that was, that was good fun. But yeah, in the moment, of course, gee, who knows how any of that stuff's going to end. Yeah, I mean, I was quite lucky. I, 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 did, um, I did 11 years of bouncing in and out of going to the Middle East. And then I decided that all my cat lives are gone and I needed a little bit of a change of direction in my career. And that's why I became a, uh, a physical training instructor and, you know, ended up running gyms and stuff like that for the second half. So, yeah, it's uh, it, it's a big contrasting career change in any way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd like to talk a little bit about your your book so you've written three books is that right three yeah and i just finished the fourth okay cool what was your fourth one the fourth one uh is about it's a departure it's about bank robbery so my you know my cousin went on a real hot the one who's taught me how to surf actually went on a real hot bank robbing tear so yeah it's sort of a story of family and bank robbery oh wow so is it sort of like a a, a little bit of fiction and a little bit of you know, reality involved in it, or was it? Nope, all real, all reality. He he hit nineteen banks uh, before he got caught, and then went to jail, got out of jail, and yeah, basically started doing it again. So he was like approaching the record, and he reached out to me when he was on the lamb. And so it's yeah, it's just how it feels to be on the lamb. Like I was so yeah, loving every second of going along on the ride with him, but he got caught again. So yeah, old cousin Dan. Mate, that sounds proper gnarly, that does. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Yeah, hopefully hopefully people get a chuckle out of it. So how did you find the whole going from being a journalist into writing books? Because you've done from, what was it from, what was the first one you did? 
Welcome to Paradise, Now Go to Hell was the first one. And then second one is cocaine and surfing. And third one is reports from hell. I've bought those. And like when we decided that we were going to have a little bit of a chat, I haven't had a chance to get through them. So I apologize. <laughs> oh, please don't apologize. Thank you for buying them. <laughs> Mate, I love surf content, but I like the abstract stuff as well. So yeah, I'm looking forward to cracking into those. But how did you find going from writing pieces to go from magazines and then writing books? How was that? It was, I, I love to write so much. Like writing is still one of my favorite things to do. And so I suppose like, yeah, it, like sitting, being able to sit down at a computer with a, just the days stretching out and the days stretching out and being able to craft a book is, is honestly was so much fun. It felt like be in the space I like to be for longer, more or less. Then I suppose also like, oh man, with the first one, yeah, there's like times, you know, when you just get, you know, I'm, I never have real writer's block, but you know, when it's real hard yards, like really grinding through page after page and it's just you know not flowing and then it starts to flow but funny I, I had to uh the first book welcome to paradise which came out i think seven years ago maybe um they never did it as an audiobook so i just went in a couple months ago and read it for the audiobook version and reading that thing seven years on i was just cringing the entire time just thinking <laughs> oh no why did i write it like this but yeah i suppose Afterwards, I thought, oh, I mean, I guess that's like anything, right? You look back anything seven years on and you're going to see, I suppose, the things you want to change, not the good parts about it. But yeah, pretty cringy. But I love I love it. I love writing books more than anything, which is, it's a problem. I think Derek, my beach group partner, he likes, I don't know if he likes writing books, but he writes books too, which is the thing that has traditionally sort of kept beach grit a little down just because we're always writing books. But yeah, I think both he and I are going to try to stop writing books for a minute. It's like an addiction. I can imagine that it, once you start getting into the flow of it, 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 it's pretty cool because you get to put what's on your mind down onto the page. I've had an idea for years and you know, it's like, it's always an idea until you actually do it in reality. Different places that I've been and the correlation with being a surfer as well and throwing that in the mix is I think is, is something that people can, that they can relate to. You should totally do it. Are you going to? I, I want to do it, yeah. To be honest with you, I have absolutely no idea where to start. <laughs> oh, man. I always, I always, I never, ever once, I didn't, like, plan something out. I literally start where I want to start and just write and see where it goes. That's every single one of those books is just start and keep going and keep going. So just start at the start. I'll start at the start then. I'll follow your <laughs> advice. <laughs> How do you find, so you talking about you, you were um, doing the audio book. How do you find reading that back? Like you're saying, you find it a bit cringeworthy. So you, you do a couple of podcasts as well, don't you? I do. Yeah, I do. One with Derek, Dirty Water, and then one with David Lee Scales called The Grit. I love them, by the way. They're pretty cool. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. You're kind. Uh, how, does the, how does the audiobook compare to podcasting? Yeah, so... Do you ever listen to your conversations that you have in your podcast? Uh, Do you listen to them back? Hell no. Hell no. I'm sure it would be <laughs> just as even more cringeworthy. The only time I've done it uh, was we had uh, on The Grit with David Lee Scales, we had uh, Chuck Patterson 
on recently, or, or I guess that was our maybe even our last show, who went skiing on, you know, whatever, at Jaws or Mavericks, wherever it was. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Listen to that one. That's good. Yeah. So I went back because I remember we had made fun of or didn't really make fun, but sort of had made fun of him in the podcast previous. And then he reached out to me and said he wanted to come on. And I was like, oh, it's amazing. But I wanted, so I went and listened to that the one before just to see, I wanted to pin David Lee on something mean that he said with Chuck Patterson in the room. So that's the only time I've ever gone back and listened. But otherwise, once a podcast is done, it is dead and buried. Have you ever listened to yours? Do you go back and listen to them? I have to, because I do all this myself. So I do the podcast. Oh, yeah. I, I then go back and do all the editing. So I take all the ums and ahs. And for instance, I know for a fact in the last 20 minutes, the stuff that I'm going to have to cut out of this. <laughs> <laughs> Does it make you better, do you think? Does it make you, I mean, I should probably go back and listen to mine and become a better podcaster. Do you feel like listening gives you sort of an, I don't know, an ability to edit? It does. I think it, it makes you think a little bit more about the way that you word things. So the very, very first one I did, I did with a friend of mine called John Thompson, who got a, um, who got a conspicuous gallantry cross, which is one of the, the highest bravery award you can get in the military, the Victoria Cross. And because we were really familiar with each other, we were like, effing and blinding and swearing it, it 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 was quite good but there was literally no structure to it at all so it was this <laughs> so you know and, and being in the military as well we had a lot of military slang in there which probably people really didn't understand either so as i've gone on i've been doing this nearly what 10 months now so i've done what this is my this will be nearly my 40th podcast that i'll put out there you, yeah. you slow you slowly learn how to kind of construct it so I've got notes down here I never used to do that you know little talking points and I tick them off as I go along and I have to take out like I say um a lot <laughs> um so you wouldn't believe listening to a podcast back how annoying it gets listening to somebody go, um, um oh that's a great point I'm going to take that in and make sure I don't say um yeah and the other one is uh, uh do you know Oh yeah, there's, there's, you know, yeah, the, 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 you know, no, that's it. You know, do you know? I cut it down. You know, you know. So I have to go back and cut all of them out. So if I've done a podcast that's maybe like two hours long, it goes back to about an hour and a half because I've said it that many bloody times. <laughs> that's really good. But it's a cool oh, process yeah. though, because you, you, you know, you look. I saying it again. You get used to your own voice but you also get to pick up on what other people are saying so it doesn't sound like they're an idiot when they're talking to when they're not, if that makes sense. Do, do you, did you uh, hate the sound of your own voice prior to this podcast thing? Yeah. And then it, do you not hate it anymore? I've just got used to listening to it back because I've got, I know I've got a really deep voice and I'm from the Midlands, which is um, central of England in Birmingham. So it's renowned for being a really sort of like dry and monotonous tone of voice. So, yeah, I've got used to it. I don't know whether other people have or not. I don't know. <laughs> oh, man, I used to hate the sound of my own voice. Where I guess podcasting, exactly what you say. I don't like it now, but I'm used to it. It doesn't like jar me when I hear myself back. It's just, oh, yeah, that's how I sound. Have you and David ever had anyone on the podcast that, 
has been really hard work to try and get a conversation out of. Feel we have who uh I feel that Derek and I are some of our early guests were harder for me. Like I think we had who was on there? There was some surfer where it just felt like, yeah, really like just dragging it out. Where those ones when I'm sitting and looking at the clock and every minute just seems like an hour when it's just like, oh, or when you know somebody's talking and that's great, you know, like they're just flowing, but I like that they're saying something really boring and going on and on and on and on and on. And I'm not going to still, you know, step in and say, okay, this is literally boring, but yeah, like those are the ones that I'm just like dreading thinking, Oh, poor people. But I think David Lee and I trying to think of a rough guest. I think it's all been fairly easy over on that one. The majority of people I get on here, half of them I I've never met before. I'd say a third of them maybe I've said hello to maybe once or twice. And then the other people are, you know, I know they're either uh, surfboard shapers, they're in the military or, or we've had passing and we can have conversations. There's that familiarity with it as well. So what I've also had to try and develop with this is good social skills, which is coming from a military background where it's all very informal is, is something that I've had to develop quite quickly. It's fun. Like, it's one of the things I like about podcasting, I suppose, is it is just a conversation, especially doing it with people I've never met. I mean, like you, where you get to have a conversation with somebody and to capture that conversation is there's something enjoyable about it. I think do you, I never think that I'm podcasting really when we're doing something like this. I always just think of, oh, I'm talking to you, which probably is super annoying to listeners sometimes of because i totally lose track of oh yeah this is being recorded i just think oh, i'm in a conversation no not at all really i get really absorbed into it i kind of get into a bubble i mean it's a bit weird because it's the covid period and like we're for instance we're still in a lockdown for a, for a couple of weeks so the majority of the podcasts i'm doing at the moment i'm doing over zoom so even if it's people in this country, which I normally go and travel to go and speak to and settle the equipment up and do it that way because of the sound quality is better and it's more personal. It is a little bit weird. However, you do kind of get absorbed into, like when you're watching a film or, I don't know, a YouTube video, you get absorbed into it and I'm absorbed into your phone screen that you've got up there and, you know, and, and then the conversation just starts flowing and you don't really notice it, I don't think, that much. Yeah, that's funny. Where where in England are you based? Did you say you were? I live in the southwest of England. So where do you know Exeter at all? Yes. Yeah. So I live about fifteen minutes south of Exeter, but where I'm currently, so where I work, is up in North Devon, which which is um, probably the only place I could really, if you don't know where it is, is about seventy miles north of Newquay. Okay. What's your What's your uh your nearest wave we have croyd bay and saunton beach um they're the they're the local breaks around here so saunton's a longboard wave it's it's a okay. very shallow shallow long beach and then croyd has lots of different sandbanks there's a couple of reefs around there too but yeah it's a it's, it's a really nice, it's a really scenic place it's probably one of my favorite places in the uk to surf i've surfed quite a a variety of breaks around the UK and I'll always come back here. It's, it's, it's an amazing place. What is your, uh, 
summation on British on British surfing or English surfing? I mean, is it what marks the English surfer? Probably their physical prowess because they're wearing that much neoprene all through the year. Yeah, I think you have to be pretty hardcore to surf all year round. Some people that I know, they only predominantly surf during the summer months. So from the end of March through till maybe the end of October, the sort of like the spring, summer and autumn times. But we get really, really like, for instance, the last few weeks and, and into next week, the swell is absolutely pumping at the moment. It's probably the best I've I've known it for 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 a long time to be consistent so to to get yourself in the water you know you're done in your five four threes your five mil boots your hood and all that sort of thing so that probably what denotes a british surfer if i'm honest is there a sense of camaraderie uh do you think more so there than somewhere like here where uh, you know I, I live in north county san diego which is just too easy to surf uh, the road is right there everything is accessible and the breaks just pack out and we're just this feeling of of hating your fellow surfer but i remember when i was in oregon if i saw another surfer somewhere i would feel you know because it was hard i would feel okay you and i we share something special is is it hatred or is it brotherly love i've got a little bit of a different turn on this because i'm i'm in quite a a unique position where i live centrally so i live probably my local break's about 10 minutes away, but it's pretty crap because it's off a estuary mouth, a, a really fast flowing tidal estuary mouth. So, um, and the waves don't really break that well around it. So if any decent breaks for me, so I commute up to work here is about an hour away. So this is what I would call the North Coast and then the South Coast, which is like into the British Channel is what I would call the South Coast. So I live within an hour of, of decent waves my my sort of standard of surfing i think is is not too bad but because i don't it's quite rare to have people locally to me that surf i find it really difficult to find people to go with so i do have friends in those different places but so to the answer to your question i think if you live in the villages like in croyd bay and and Braunton, which is the nearest one or you live in newquay then i think there would be that camaraderie and you know that that sort of like niche, you know, everybody around there. But outside of that, it's quite difficult because we haven't got these big built up populations like you do in, in California or any of the seaside towns in America. It, it's all very like small little populations, you know, between a couple of thousand to 500 that live in these little villages. So it's quite difficult sometimes. It sounds pretty dreamy though, to live in a little seaside village and yeah, be able to surf and then go to the pub uh, I would rather do that than this to be honest with you it's pretty cool and I was talking to to Devin Howard the other day and he was talking about how you don't get that many good waves which is the stereotype is that you know it's always pumping because you're on the Pacific coast and you're getting all these swells come through and when I was talking to him about that I was like hey, you're a bloody liar mate <laughs> <laughs> But then I was also thinking as well, because I had a conversation with a shaper the other day and he was saying that the boards and stuff that say, for instance, that come out of Channel Islands are predominantly really shaped for decent waves. And if you compare the, the waves that break in California to the, what they are here, a rubbish day for you would probably be a really good day for us. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. 
there's loads of different comparisons and you could probably go all day on about talking about stuff like that, you know? Sure. How do you find the local surf scene around you? I mean, obviously you've asked me the question about here. Let's turn it the other way around. What, what's your thoughts? I mean, there's something to, of course, California surfing, uh, you know, as sort of the epicenter, I guess, of surf culture or historically or an epicenter, I should say, of surf culture. North County, I like a lot better. I think, I don't know, but there's something, it gets annoying just how many people do surf, but I suppose, you know, now I'm going to just not be so grumpy anymore. Uh, I still do <laughs> feel, feel a camaraderie with surfers, right? Like we are surfers and surfing is what sort of brings us together which you know you and I maybe wouldn't be having a conversation if it wasn't for surfing and so the fact that surfing can act this connection point and I think all surfers you know and I I write about this I think a lot there's something I love about the surfer mind being broken in a similar way like surfers are are odd ducks right like what we do and what we care about is different than i think what the general population cares about and the fact that we have that together so you meet a surfer you know from anywhere in the world and you share something i think even even the way your brain works even the makeup of what what you value yeah you'll share with surfers around the world so all to say that it does feel nice as much as i complain about crowds and whatever to be part of a you know north county san diego where surfing is so essential to here like to be part of that in the middle of that there's something that feels nice about that i was listening to your conversation i think it was with uh, with david the other the other week and you were talking about counterculture and how much the the surfing mindset and the like the rebelization of surfing back in the in the early days was kind of frowned upon by the normal public do you feel that the counterculture now has been watered down quite a lot because there are so many people getting into the water and starting to surf, especially during this COVID period, because, you know, it's an outdoor recreational sport now, as opposed to more of what we would probably call back in the day lifestyle, because, you know, you could go traveling with a surfboard and see different places. Completely. And I think on both ends, it's getting squished, like on the one end of having like surf coach parents right like bringing their kids up and uh, to try to be pros by you know i don't know in a, in a very soccer kind of way i think really is damaging to part of part of surfing and then the other part is that all these beginners not that beginners are necessarily bad but around here it feels i don't know how much care anybody has when they're starting it as like this i'm starting to surf as part of my covid healthy lifestyle thing without caring about the culture or the history or just the nuances. And to me, yeah. So I I think that's a huge bummer. I think the part, the part I love about surfing or I don't know, is it's so much surfing to me is about so much more than surfing, right? Like there is the act of riding waves, but surfing from my whole life has been, you know, my identity and the thing I care about and the, history and my you know even relationships with people like you know matt warshaw or whatever these real surf-based relationships i have it's just so woven into my life at multiple different levels and in multiple different ways um yeah and surf as more than surf i don't think these both i don't like it as sport and i don't like it as this is my healthy lifestyle activity like and yeah i feel I don't know that the soul of it is necessarily being damaged, but I definitely think 
or feel responsible for, you know, with Beach Grit and everything else to keep this, this gritty core together. There's something about that. So the sort of like the, the follow on question to this for me, which I've been dying to ask you is why do you think there's so much animosity between short borders and long borders? And now, and I note your favorite conversation, mid-lengthers. Oh man, I'm, I become I become a mid mid lengther myself. But uh, oh, that's right, actually, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't I don't ride it too much these days. I oh that's not true. It's Devin Howard taught me about the mid length. It is horses for courses, of course, and uh, the mid length is actually for good head high days. So when I take it out on good head high days tier, I really love it. But the reason I hate long borders uh, is because they take all the good waves. I mean. I suppose I should hate myself uh, for shortboarding around longboarders, but I don't know. There's, yeah, like just the way that longboarders operate around here is really annoying. Like they can catch the waves, obviously further out. The the stinking fade thing. Do you longboard? I've got a mixed bag, yeah. So I shortboard yeah. and I longboard, but it's it's more to do with the size of the wave to what I do. So I use the tool for the condition. Sure. That around here though, just the like the there's a been a you know a big resurgence in like kind of hipster longboarding. So they'll be out there and just taking off in a wave and fading one way and then going the other way. And I'm just, oh come on, why? Why does this is such a hassle? But it's my fault. I shouldn't be I shouldn't be surfing around them. Like I wish almost I hate rules and regulations, but I wish that there was designated you longboard here and you shortboard here and never the twain shall meet. Have you ever thought about flipping it on its head a little bit and thinking about if you were a longboarder, would you be like that? These shortboarders are in the way, get them out of the way. I don't think so because if you're on a longboard, you're catching the wave way out. I mean, I suppose you'd be mad about maybe bobbing and weaving around them. Uh, you know, because when I, one of the waves I ride most here, wave called uh, Pipes, the longboarders will be way out. I'll sit way on the inside. And so I suppose if I was them, I'd maybe think, okay, I got to, every time this stupid guy, I got to ball, you know, I got to carve around him, but I'm too busy hating them. So I don't have time to think, I don't have time to put myself in their surf shoes. You talked about it a couple of seconds ago about Devon gave you a, a Channel Islands mid. Had you ridden mid lamps before that? Or was that kind of like your first one you'd ridden? And what did you think of it? Yeah, never. I had never, I'd been a, you know, shortboard only guy forever. And I mean, what turned me on to it initially was just the Instagram clips of Devin riding it, where I was mesmerized by it. The way he rides that thing is the way I want to look, you know, ideally <laughs> as life. a surfer. Yeah, that's, that's it. Like that flow. And, you know, I'm not, I sure I ride a shortboard, but I am no radical surfer. I'm not, do, you know, doing airs or doing, you know, real severe cutbacks. I love the flow. That's the part of surfing I love the most is just that flowy feeling. And it looked like, you know, Devin on a mid, it looked like he was getting everything out of the wave in exactly the way that I wanted to. And so having Devin as my spirit animal guide into mid-lengthing or riding a mid-length was ascend are so important because I would have thought, you know, okay, a mid-length is for crappy days, right? Your shortboard is for good days. Your mid-length is for crappy days where Devin just explained when he gifted me that mid-length, uh, look, look at how mine's not even that long. It's like six ten, 
that's the longest board I've maybe ever had. Him just saying, look at the rail here, right? You have a lot of rail. So you need wave for that. So it's ride your mid length when it's shoulder high or above. And around here on like a real, yeah, shoulder head high day. Oh, it feels so good. I mean, those mid lengths are sort of made for North County, San Diego. The waves here or where I often surf is not, you know, super critically steep or barreling or anything. So it just feels so nice to get in there, to, to be able to catch the wave a bit earlier, to have that much board to sort of bite the wave too. Like, uh, yeah, I was out, I'm, I suppose a couple of weeks ago now, but took off on a, you know, for around here, a big sort of steep wave. And just the way the board with enough weight and everything, it just like dropped in. And I thought, okay, this, I totally get it. And I mean, I understand why these things exist. Like, you need board sometimes for condition, which I've been loving it. Do you not think sometimes though, you've got a guy like Devon who's created with Brit this Channel Lions mid length and now it's pretty much sold out of everywhere. But there's also a counter to that as well. So everyone like you, you've seen the clips of Devon riding it and some, you know, Michael February and, and Stephanie Gilmore and loads of other people that ride for Channel Islands too. But the, the kind of counter to that is people want to buy that board to surf like that. However, they are high-end athletes. So then you get these people that are buying, look, I'm, I'm going to be blunt about it, pretty expensive surfboards for probably something that they're not going to be able to ride. And that goes for like other boards as well. You know, Sharp Eyes with uh, Philip Toledo and all the other pros that have got these these branded boards out that, you know, people want to ride, but it's not necessarily the right thing for them. Completely. It's funny. I've like my whole life or whole surfing life, especially I remember with early on with Matt Biolas, uh, I would get a lost board from him and I would always ask him, hey, Matt, what should I get? And he would always say, how the hell do I know? I've never seen you surf. <laughs> you know, I don't know what you should get. And I would be furious at him always. Like, you don't have to see me surf. I can tell you how I surf. I surf not very great, but, you know, passable. You know exactly how I surf. Uh, you've seen enough surfers to know what not very great, but passable looks like. You know how tall I am. You know how thin I am. You know, you know how I walk. You know how I move. Just why can why is it so hard for you to tell me what board I should be riding? Which exactly to your point, I always want people to tell me what I should ride. I don't like because I feel I'll, I go and make bad decisions by myself. I mean, I look at my quiver through you know the years. I mean, when I was in stinking yeah, first came down here, I got like the most potato chippy epoxy board that works on nothing and never worked and was awful, but. For, exactly to your point, I'll see somebody ride, I'll see Kelly Slater riding something and think, oh, that's what I want to ride. I have no business to ride anything that Kelly Slater's riding. So yeah, like Devin sort of explaining to me this mid-link thing, that was the maybe the first time that I've had somebody both, you know, off or give me a board and tell me how to use it uh, and something that was good for me. So I want more of that. I want more shapers. Just tell me what to ride. Don't have me wander around in the dark because I'll make the wrong decision every time. I think everyone's really guilty of going onto YouTube and, and seeing what other people, I mean, look, I don't know whether you're the same as me. I hate seeing photos of myself and I hate oh. seeing videos of myself because the only reason why I say that is I'm, 
I'm very self-critical as well because I've got a little bit of a knowledge background and coaching background as well. We've all watched technique videos, you know, like, right, this is how you compress. This is how you do a top turn. You need to rotate your hips, look back down the wave and bring your arms around and blah, 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 and all that sort of stuff. And then you think you're doing it. And then when someone takes a photo of you, you're not, you're like that. Oh man, this sucks. <laughs> you're absolutely not. Oh, there's been, I mean, I don't ever, ever get photographed on purpose, but the times that I accidentally have once in particular, I was in Mexico and they had one of those, you know, beach people shooting on the beach. Uh, and I knew that person was on the beach. I thought I did the sickest cutback on a critical wave. Uh, in like right in the pocket. And I thought, okay, this is this, that was a legit move. Uh, went in, beach photographer said, Oh, I, you know, I've been taking pictures and I got some of yours. And I'm like, yeah, 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 I know you got that one. It was sick. Uh, saw it. It was a tiny little wave. I was way out on the shoulder doing who knows what, standing directly upright, just so awful. Yeah, I hate it. Hate it. I'd like to talk to you about the WSL and what's happening with that at the moment. What's your take on? this whole COVID thing and the the tour going to Australia, but different places getting cancelled. How do you see this whole season going out? Because I just think that it's just a juggling match at the moment and they're dropping balls all over the place and people are throwing apples in and they're like that. Oh, let's try this. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. The I would I think I'm fairly critical, obviously, on Beach Grit about how bad they're blowing it. And I understand. I, I'm not naive. I know that in the time of COVID... It's very, very, very difficult to pull things off, you know, especially when you have an international, you know, it's an international tour with multi nationalities as part of it. But I still have no idea how they blew it so bad. I mean, to me, surfing, again, is ideally positioned or was ideally positioned to be able to actually succeed in COVID. Uh, I just feel where they blew it is they didn't, they should have ripped the thing apart and thought, okay, we're going to do something entirely different because of COVID. We are not even going to pretend to run a, you know, 30-odd man men's and 20-odd women's tour. That's just too much. What we're going to do is take, I mean, it's basically what Travis Rice did with Natural Selection, right? Where he started and launched a tour dead middle COVID and was completely able to do it because he reimagined sort of the idea of competition where you take people that or riders that people want to see and you match them up against riders people want to see and you just do this pared down thing. Of course, snowboarding is different, but not really. They have a waiting, you know, you need snow and they have a waiting period. It's a lot the same. And he massively successfully did it in a way the WSL didn't because I just think they're... St I don't know why they're just stuck in a mindset of we have to have this tour thing. Again, they should have taken, I think, my opinion, they should have taken the top 10 best surfers in the world, either stuck them on a boat, or I mean, you could do one in Fiji, you could do one in Tahiti, you could do one, you know, if you're talking about 10 to 15 surfers, I think that's manageable. And you just tell everybody else, I'm sorry, you know, we're, we are doing, this is our COVID tour. It won't be a, necessarily a national or a you know world champion at the end but we'll have a champion of the covid year do one day events no problem right i don't know how it's that difficult what do you think about the way that they did the vans triple crown this year with the videos and then you had to put videos in for certain places in, in a cutoff point do you think there's there's traction in that or 
I think it was pretty good. It was funny. I thought they didn't, I wasn't even compelled to watch it until after it came out. And then I watched it after the fact that, oh, that's pretty good, right? But the fact that I wasn't compelled to watch it while it was happening, it was a major mistake, I think, on the WSL's part. Like, how are you, me as consuming this stuff, I am your consumer. How am I not interested? Again, I feel WSL continually blows both messaging and, because, yeah, I, I mean, I thought that format was interesting after the fact. Did you? I was the same as you. I knew that it was going on, but I didn't really like tune in. I, I, there, was a, um, there was a couple of things on YouTube. A couple of Aussies were doing like a, a weekly, almost like a podcast like show that was like 40 minutes long. And they were showing the little bits of edits from like Chris Amore and John John and stuff. But they weren't like throwing everybody that had put all their entries in. Because I don't think all the entries got shown until when they chose the winner anyway, which is which is, which is a, so weird. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't you want to see, I would like if, I would want to see, of course you want to see John John and this, but like there had to have been some good Dark Horse stories in there, right? Where I don't know even, I mean, I didn't see any like, okay, this is some no-name Hawaiian guy and look at this, you know, look at his sunset wave or whatever. Like where those are the stories that I think are compelling. If you have some you know underground charger who's out there throwing down i mean i didn't see any of that stuff no i thought it was quite funny when some some people they must have been taking the piss because they were taking videos off the surf line footage from like their iWatch or something like that and they were <laughs> they were uploading that i thought that was quite funny that is so good just i'm not gonna afford a filmer just let Surfline film for me yeah i'm not not really bothered about it but let's yeah. let's get a little bit of a <laughs> little bit of content out going back to sort of surfboards and designs what's your thoughts on having surfboard shapers but also machines that pump boards out as well what's your thoughts on that i mean i think that the the machine shaping is of course inevitable and i'm sure from you know the shapers around here at least it seems like the machine does the work that's just annoying and then, you know, the boards are, of course, hand finished. Uh, I think the whole pop out thing, um, the, you know, make them in Thailand or whatnot is not so good just because I think there there is an art to it and there is a craft to it. And, you know, not that I'm against cheap labor. I mean, these guys have to do what they have to do. You know, they're to have businesses and and whatnot. But the I don't know, there's something about the art of surfboard making, knowing your shaper, getting something sort of locally. I mean, you know, for any surfer, yeah, great. Have a Kelly board or, you know, a, whatever you want, any kind of, um, you know, even a Channel Islands. But I think even Channel Islands produces everything locally, right? Like where it's a, a local shop and a local shaper building that board. But uh, yeah, long, dumb way around of answering your question. I think the machine is fine. I think the machine though is only really fine in the hands of a local shaper or a at least a regional shaper there's something i mean do you ride local boards around there or boards shaped locally i'm gonna say no if i'm perfectly honest i mean for instance my go-to board at the moment is a firewire cymatic okay it is possibly the best board i've ever ridden so do you care do you care where your board came from as long as i suppose that's the thing you shouldn't nobody should care about where their board came from as long as it goes good there is yes and no i've got funny old thing which is talking about it i've got a 7.0 mid-length being shaped by a local shaper down the road from me now um, i did a podcast with him luke young a few months ago and i i wanted a board shaped by him anyway and i thought 
do you know what, sod it. I'm just going to go down and, and do it. I've never really had boards shaped for me. In fact, it, I, I did have one shaped for me about 15 years ago, and it was when I came back from my second Afghan tour. And I went onto the internet, and this is when like internet was like real, real raw then, I think. And I threw some Dems in there, and I liked the idea of Morning of the Earth because I had, that was the only DVD I took away with me, I think. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to have one of them. And I got it shaped. Yeah, it did not go well in British waves. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, oh, man. That, that was the only board I've ever really had shaped, I think. Yeah, see, I mean, I, again, getting, yeah, the, my stupid Kelly Slater potato chip thing that I had shaped for myself. So dumb. I was just, I had no idea what the dimensions were. Like, that's having a shaper, like Devin, you know, that the mid-licked I have was shaped for me, but Devin took care of all the dimensions, right? Like, I didn't throw in my dimensions. He knows what I want. Where I think if you have a shaper who's who knows you a bit, who has seen you surf, or at least is vaguely aware of how you surf, a good shaper they're the magicians like i don't want to throw in what i think i don't know yeah i'm going to be one of those people that says do what i say and not what i do go and get your board shaped by a local shaper it's i mean there is something to it i think a local shaper who knows the waves you know in your region i always think theoretically is the best person you know as long as they're competent is the best person because they'll make you a board i mean again you, knowing a shaper having a relationship with a shaper and being able to have that shaper shape a board for where you surf. I don't know how it gets better than that, to be honest. Yeah. I hundred percent agree. Mate, I'm going to close out with a quick fire round because I can see your daughter hanging around the back of you. And I don't know <laughs> yeah. what my eight year old would be doing. She'd probably be jumping on me. So she's been real, really well behaved and say thank you from me. I will. The first question I'm going to throw to you is if you had one surfboard fin set up for the rest of your life, would it be a single fin, twin fin, quad thruster, bonza, or finless? I'm going to go, I'm going to go real weird and go quad. I really, I like to, I like to go fast. And if I like quads in point breaks, it's just too fun. Just go in a straight line, no turns. That's it. That's it. Just fast down the line. It's my favorite kind of surfing. (laughs) Favorite surfer and why? Uh, favorite surfer is, oh, uh, what's his name? Ryan Callanan. I really, really, really like the way Billabong rider Ryan Callanan, Australian. I really like the way both he surfs. Um, and I like his story. I like that he was, you know, the darling up and coming kid and then sort of fell on hard times and is back now. His sort of, I don't know, the progression mixed with the maturity. I really, really like in his surfing and his his go for broke way he surfs. I love. He never safety surfs. I think that's the most constructive answer I've had for that question. <laughs> the first surf film you ever watched? First surf, surf film I ever watched was a Christian surf movie called Sun Riders, S-O-N Riders, which featured, I think it was Mike Lambrizi and I don't know, it was... It was, uh, who else was in there? I should know all of them. But yeah, it was a Christian surf movie. I've never seen that. Oh, Sunriders. <laughs> Sunriders. The last surf film you watched, full length edit or full length film, not an edit? Uh, do, can we count Tom Kearns as a surf film? I suppose that, that counts as a surf film. Now it's a little too short, huh? 
Well, I don't know. I liked it and I've watched it about 50 million times. So um, if you add those too. minutes up, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I watched that. I literally watched that thing four times and I've never watched a surf. I mean, or I can't remember the last surf movie I've watched more than once. That thing absolutely blew my mind. Just the way, not only Tom surfing, but the way Vaughn put it together, it was just, I thought it was a beautifully well done film. But like, Full, full length before that, I think, is probably last one. Uh, maybe year zero, Joe G's. And the last question is your dream surf trip. Dream, I'm really, really, really going to be boring here. It is just Selena Cruz. It is Punta Conejo, Selena Cruz. That right point is just too much fun. Like, it's simple. It's Mexico. And... Yeah, a head high, little above head high, right point. Like, you can keep all your island reefy stuff. I'll just take a head high point. Love that, mate, because everybody that I've spoken to is like, oh, they go on a boat trip to the Maldives. Yeah, no. I mean, sure, it'd be great. Nothing against it. But yeah, just being able to rock up and have a head high point and surf all day, too much fun. Chas Smith, thank you very much for talking to me on the podcast and I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share and subscribe on your podcast provider and also follow The Grumpy Surfer on Instagram. Thanks for listening.